Moncrief on News Talk. Time for stuff. Okay, it is time for stuff. Uh, as you heard, there are some new uh, opening sequence where, where, uh, where nothing happens. Uh, now, the reason why is uh, 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 everybody was thrown into confusion by that is that we've had an old switcheroo around. So stuff is now going out every Monday at this time uh, and TV on the radio is, uh, is at three o'clock. Uh, Simon Tierney, though, uh, joins us once again. We haven't changed it that much. Simon, good afternoon, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Sean. Uh, would you like to sing the stuff? No, we won't bother with doing that. Today we're talking... It changes about, everything. Yeah, it changes everything. Uh, very good. Uh, so the, the, today we're talking about the airline. Yes. I said, is there a debate about what do you call an airline or how do you define what an airline is? Yeah, so an airline really is um, a public, publicly available form of transport that has a regularly scheduled route. Mm. And the reason I specify that is because, you know, if we're talking about origin dates and stuff, there were some pilot schemes <coughs> with unintended, unintended bun there, um, with various uh, future airlines. But when there was a proper regulated service, it, it's debatable between two particular companies, uh, one in the states and one here in Europe. Um, the Benoist Aircraft Company they started a regularly scheduled service between Saint Petersburg in Florida and Tampa, the city of Tampa. <coughs> Not a very long distance, long mm. at that time, of course. And that was six days a week. Now, this carried one pilot and one passenger. Of course, this is 1914, Sean. The airplane was only 11 years old as an invention. Right. And uh, it only carried one passenger. So can you call it an airline if it only carries one passenger? European scholars argued that it mm. probably doesn't. Yeah, because that's, that's more like <clears throat> commissioning an air, a, a thing. You know, you're just hiring it like a taxi rather than... Exactly, it's almost like a private service as opposed to... So uh, many um, uh, flight scholars would suggest that KLM was in fact the the first proper airline operating of course out of Amsterdam and they started their first service in May of 1920 and this was between Amsterdam and London. And it's interesting the the first flight took place in in May of that year 1920 and it was a, a four-seater de Havilland airplane de Havilland was uh, very pioneering in commercial aircraft at this time and it was actually between Croydon Airport in London which no longer exists and Amsterdam Schiphol which mm. is still the main airport airport in Amsterdam. Um, it carried two passengers, um, a load of newspapers and mail, of course, uh, cargo and passengers went together at that time. And it carried a letter from London's Lord Mayor to the Mayor of Amsterdam. And the letter said, with the opening of the first regular air service between England and Holland, I send you greetings from London. I wish that this service will contribute to the friendly business relationship between the two cities and our countries. And this was also an open cabin. How do you mean? So the the passengers were open to the elements, like a World War One aeroplane. Oh uh, God! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So, oh, it's a glamour of air travel. Yeah, so lovely. It started in. It's interesting because the the service the route started in May, right, nineteen twenty. It got to and and KLM were like, right, this is you know. Uh, Twice a day, this is our our route. But it came to kind of November and KLM were like, 
it's absolutely freezing <laughs> for everybody involved. So they suspended the service until the spring of 1921. Wisely, I would have thought. That Indeed. Was, would have got like sued <clears throat> by everybody if they were stupid enough to go on it. But I suppose without even realising. Actually, this is also the... I'm not going to ask you to pronounce it, but it's the first time I've ever seen written down what KLM stands for. Uh, yes. Uh, and that's, yeah. uh, that's, a, that's some mouthful. Well, it is a mouthful, and my Dutch isn't up to par, but it essentially translates as Royal Dutch Airlines or something like that. Um, right, okay, fair enough. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it was, uh, of course, uh, Holland has a monarchy, and it's, it's no surprise in some ways that KLM was the first commercial airline, Sean, because... Sometimes we forget that the Dutch had a very large uh, and a very rich empire um, mm. in the uh, the Dutch East Indies, as it was called at that time, and that was a really, a really a motivating factor for the Dutch to to start exploring air routes because it was such a long distance between Amsterdam and Batavia, which was the capital of uh, now Indonesia now it's called Jakarta one of the largest cities in the world Batavia sounds kind of cool it, it sounds like something cooler. from a, you know an Indiana Jones movie yes it does <laughs> um so it was in 1929 I think Sean that they had the first full service twice a week to Batavia um Long in Indonesia flight. This was a very long flight and it's extraordinary looking at the advertisements for this route at the time. It was a Fokker FV2, which was an incredible airplane because it was able to travel, well, not necessarily very long distances, but it was completely covered and all the rest and it carried up to eight passengers. So it was. It felt like a, this was the start of a proper airline business. But it took five and a half days to travel from Amsterdam to Batavia because there were 23 stops along the way because there was it was very difficult commercially to do long routes at that time. There wasn't mm. enough space for carrying fuel. It was dangerous. Uh, the pl- airplanes were much slower, of course. Um, they flew much closer to the ground too. And um, this was a groundbreaking service though um, because people were were able to travel to the other side of the world in five and a half days that sounds like a long time to us if you were traveling by ship from Amsterdam to the then Dutch East Indies it would have taken I'm not sure maybe six to eight weeks or even more yeah so five and a half days was nothing to people in the 1920s and this one this plane had a roof on it I hope indeed yeah yes. right okay but and I suppose even there would have been a difficulty because in you know as you say like air travel wasn't that old at that point how many uh, how many places could they get to land yeah, well, indeed, yeah. And of course, uh, we shouldn't forget that navigation at that time was so rudimentary in the sense that pilots were really looking for landmarks mm. to guide them um, as they went. Uh, oh, there's the Eiffel Tower. Excellent. Let's pop down here kind of thing. Uh, and that that's the way it was done. I mean, it was only a few years previously in 1924 that KLM they they trialed this route. They were like, is it possible for us to fly? And only experts on the plane, pilots, navigators, etc. And it took them a lot longer than five and a half days. But they proved to the executives in KLM that this route would be possible, that we could make the empire closer to home by doing this. 
was it commercially viable to mm. do this? The tickets were very, very expensive, of course, and it was only the elites that were able to travel. And even at that, because it's, you know, eight passengers, two crew, so it was like, bring, you know, five days worth of sandwiches with you, lads. Because it's probably not, you're not cruising in and out of the duty-free when you go to your stopover. So no, no, indeed, indeed. And with 23 stops, and in some of those stops, you'd only be landing for an hour or so to refuel. So you might not be getting off the airplane at all. Things were rather different in an Irish context, Sean, but not too long after. Um, it was 1936, of course, that Aer Lingus okay. started their first service. It wasn't called Aer Lingus. Um, it was called uh, Irish Sea Airways. That was the marketing name for Aer Lingus. Which, so Irish Sea Airways was jointly operated by Aer Lingus and Blackpool and West Coast Air Services. It wasn't until 1946 that Aer Lingus became the, you know, the public name hmm. of the company when they got sole rights to it. Um, the first flight took off from Baldonnell in uh, May, on May the 27th, 1936, I found a wonderful account. A journalist in the Evening Standard was there that morning and it reads, uh, shortly before the plane took off, it was blessed by the Reverend V.M. O'Reardon. That's the first thing, of course, that had to happen. He was the chaplain at Baldonnell in the presence of a small group which included Sean Lamass, Minister for Industry and Commerce and future Taoiseach, of course. The passengers, having made the necessary customs declarations, took their seats in the plane smilingly and within a second or two the machine was off on her journey to Bristol. She rose gracefully and passed high over the heads of the little group and by 9.50am she disappeared from view and soon the drone of her engines was lost. An extraordinary account of that maiden flight to Brussels. Mm, yeah. Uh, and so, so I, wh- what was the date again that Irish Sea Airways became Aer Lingus? So 1946, uh, it became Aer Lingus. It became known as Aer Lingus to the public, right? And um, it was also around that time that Aer Lingus started advertising for air hostesses, mm. as they were called back then, because the planes had gotten big enough. Um, Aer Lingus had started their first continental flight, uh, which was to Paris, because all the flights before that were to the Isle of Man, Liverpool, London, Bristol, etc. And um, they were soliciting people do applications from, from women, of course. It, was, it had to be a woman to do the job. And I found an advertisement in the Irish press from 1945, which gives us an insight into what things were like back then in the airline industry, Sean. I'll read it out for you. It says, Aer Lingus are looking for girls to act as hostesses on their services. Girls must not be more than 26 years of age, no taller than 5 foot 6 inches, and no heavier than 9 stone. Good linguists are wanted. Applicants should have a knowledge of Irish, English and French, as well as a pleasing personality. <laughs> Very important. Yeah, of course, yes. Uh, we want young, hot women, uh, is essentially <laughs> how, how, how that translates, uh, really. But I suppose it, it was like that for, uh, for for many decades, really. And hard, bloody work for them, too. Very, very hard work, yeah. Um, I recently read a fascinating book about the history of the women who worked for Pan Am um, in the mm. Golden Age in the 50s and 60s. And it's extraordinary the role that Air uh, that cabin staff played in that time, even in terms of diplomacy or, you know, airlifting uh, Americans out of uh, Saigon when when Vietnam fe- when South Vietnam fell, all those kind of things. And Pan Am really kind of encapsulates the 
you know, what, what we think of when we think of the golden age of air travel. And no airplane sums it up better, I think, than the Boeing 377 Stratocruiser. This was an extraordinary airplane, Sean, that Pan Am used for their intercontinental commercial flights from sort of, well, all through the 1950s and up to around 1961 or 62. And um, it carried 100 passengers, right? But it had two levels. On the lower level was a full lounge bar mm-hmm. where you would go to socialize yeah. there was a cocktail waiter there you would lounge around on sofas and couches and you could obviously smoke there yes, and all the rest imagine that like haze of smoke I know. is there anything to be said for cracking open a window here lads no don't um, and uh, then above on the top deck you had your your seats but you had the pleasure of um, a chef from Maxims to Paris yeah. who cooked a beef tenderloin fresh on board and sliced it in front of you on the trolley. And you had a bunk bed above your seat where you could sleep on long haul flights, which is just incredible to think of. Yeah, that is quite extraordinary. When did they start actually getting rid of, of smoking on flights? Yeah, so it's interesting. In an Irish context, I was just doing a quick uh, search on the Irish newspaper archive there, and I saw that Ryanair banned smoking on their Irish Sea, so basically to to UK airports in 1990, and that was quite pioneering uh, and Aer Lingus followed soon after but it was very incremental and that's not just in an Irish context in America too like in America in 1973 they said right something has to be done about this because the aerostesses and the pilots were all giving out that like we're suffocating we're trying to work here mm. and it's just absolutely like there's nowhere for this mm. the smoke to escape to uh, in this sealed cylinder so in 1973 the Americans said right we'll put Smoking and non-smoking areas, right? Yeah, (laughs) it's obviously so ridiculous, you know, that that even existed. But 1990, smoking was banned on domestic flights in America. Um, This is unbelievable, right? It wasn't until 2000 that smoking was banned on intercontinental flights from America. Cheney, man, really? So that you could smoke, uh, you know, Dublin to um, New York. Um, until 2000 if you wanted Um, my dad tells a story the reason I got interested in this because he tells a story about flying from Heathrow to Tokyo in the late 1980s and he happened to be sitting beside a man who chain smoked for the whole 11 hours right beside him which is just (laughs) extraordinary to think about but in flight smoking um, it's amazing how recently like there is there is no airplane now that you can smoke on. Yeah, that's okay. not a surprise. Hmm. But what is surprising is until how recently you could smoke on certain airlines. So it's no surprise, perhaps, that Cubana and um, Chinese airlines are uh, airlines and our two communist country friends. Um, Cubana banned smoking uh, in 2014, and Chinese <laughs> airlines banned it in uh, 2017. However, there was special dispensation for the pilots on Chinese airlines that they could smoke in the cockpit until 2019. That's, as far as I can make out, the last hurrah of in-flight smoking. That's mad altogether. You can kind of see it maybe uh, in Cuba 
would have skin in the game in the sense of, you know, Cuban cigars and all yeah, that kind yeah, of stuff. But yeah. it's not like the Chinese ever bothered about what, you know, the Chinese authorities ever uh, worry too much about what people's opinions were about smoking or not. Uh, the uh, uh, A few uh, comments on this. Uh, the uh, In fairness, five days is nothing, says one texter. Those long-distance boats had to basically be floating towns because people were on them for so long. It's hard for us to fathom how far away places like Australia were back in the day. It was a life-altering decision decision to go there. Well, indeed, but I, I, I assume these were like rich people who could afford to go there. Uh, interestingly, you can't smoke on flights, but you'll notice there are still ashtrays in the jacks because they're required as a safety measure against fire. Didn't they? You know, like, I think for a while you could still get away with having a sneaky fag in, in, in the toilet without an alarm going off. Yeah, uh, my understanding is that an alarm would go off now, but it, it is true. Your texture is absolutely right. You must have ashtrays in airplanes just in case someone breaks the rules uh, because the last thing you want is, uh, is, a, is a fire starting. So okay. there was a situation in 1990 when Ryanair introduced that ban and... Um, they said in a. They were interviewed by the the Cork Examiner at the time. They were interviewed and um, the air hostesses, and they said, "How did it go? This is the first Irish airplane not to have smoking." Said it. It was surprisingly easy to implement this new rule, except there were two lads at the back of the plane. They're always there, <laughs> like the two lads at the back of the bus, and they clearly weren't regular flyers, but they were shocked to discover that they weren't allowed. They kind of had the cigarettes halfway out of the box. And what's interesting about it is that the aerostesses, they were full of sympathy for these two men mm. that got, we felt kind of bad having to tell them, uh, actually, we've just introduced a new rule that you're not allowed to smoke on the airplane, which for many people was just, my God, that's just... That is government overreach. How dare you bring in such a rule? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, and it hasn't stopped since. Simon, thanks a million for uh, coming into us. Simon Tierney, there you are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Moncrief on News Talk.